everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered. For those of you just tuning in, Nemex Podcast is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. This week's episode is sponsored by New England Asset Management. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering inflation. ITR's Connor Lokar shares steps insurers can take to mitigate some of the complications that arise during periods of high inflation. Plus, S&P withdraws its proposal for insurer rating changes, why the agency is going back to the drawing board and reconsidering how it assesses risk-based capital adequacy. S&P Global Ratings has withdrawn its proposal to change the way it assesses risk-based capital adequacy for insurers and reinsurers. NEMIC had raised a number of concerns about the proposal that sought to change the manner in which S&P measures credit worthiness of insurance companies. During a House Financial Services Committee hearing last week, witnesses and lawmakers supported S&P's decision to put the proposal on hold. However, they differed over how and to what extent legislation could, should, or would be implemented to prevent further anti-competitive practices in the bond rating space. Republican Representative Bill Hazunga reiterated the overreaching criticism of the S&P proposal and said that it diverges significantly from the U.S. regulatory framework. He asked American Council of Life insurers Mariana Gomez-Vac how that would impact insurers and the products they offer in the marketplace. There's a number of different reasons given the complexity of the actual formula itself, but the big picture issue is that insurers, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to manage to two different capital standards. And the U.S. system is the NEIC risk-based capital system. It's a book value type approach that uses reserves. Uh, It is more cash flow based. The S&P global capital model is more similar to Solvency 2 and the ICS. It's a market, more of a market consistent framework, um, which tends to be unfriendly towards two long-term products. S&P said it intends to issue another request for comment to incorporate any alternatives for the withdrawn proposal. NAMIC views this as a positive sign that S&P Global is serious about amending its approaches and methodologies and that the revised proposal will be a more workable solution for insurers. As wildfires increase in severity and frequency, particularly in the western United States, we continue to see the impact on the insurance industry. NAMIC recently hosted a webinar with regulators from Colorado, Montana, and Oregon to discuss steps they are taking to address the increased risks associated with wildfires and how it all comes back to compliance. Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies Peg Brown says new challenges have come up since the Marshall Fire burned more than 6,000 acres earlier this year. In Colorado, we've had a couple fires that impacted communities, but to a much smaller extent. The fires are occurring on state or federal land, and they're just not in habitated areas. The Marshall Fire was a true wake-up call because it literally blew up in the grasslands just outside of Boulder, Colorado, and went through subdivisions. And that's what, you know, became particularly challenging. And that's what we're looking at 
as we are trying to address this. The other aspect is that, you know, fires of this size create their own weather events, which do include convective winds. And so we, you know, in the Marshall Fire, we are getting a lot of questions about, you know, specific wind deductibles and whether it's a fire deductible that applies or a wind deductible that applies Mm -hmm. or both. Um, We've asked the carriers to go with a single fire. Not all of them have agreed. Um, But those are the type of issues that we need to start looking at. And it's now into multi-peril in a peril. NAMIC members can view the full webinar under the Compliance Resources tab at NAMIC.org. Well, as we all know, inflation isn't a new risk for insurance carriers, but as rates continue to run hot across the globe, its impact on the industry is likely to last for years to come. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldridge talks with ITR Economics senior forecaster Connor Lokar about steps insurers can take to mitigate some of the complications that arise during periods of high inflation. On today's Unscripted, we're joined by Connor Lokar of ITR Economics to discuss some of the impacts of inflation on the insurance industry. Thanks for joining us today, Connor. Thank you, Neil. I'm happy to be here. Obviously, exciting times in the economy. Maybe maybe exciting for the wrong reasons, but there's a lot yeah. going on, so I'm looking certainly, forward to it. Certainly eventful and has everybody's attention at the moment. So let's just sort of start right in. So as you might know and imagine, you guys have actually participated in some of these uh, at all of our events and discussions with company leaders. You know, the economic environment generally, inflation specifically, comes up repeatedly. Um, and so we thought we'd explore that a bit with you today. Uh, so just give us your thoughts on, you know, kind of where we are, some of the causes for the inflationary situation we're seeing, how it may affect the insurance industry specifically, those kinds of things. Sure. So, you know, I think, you know, the key word there is change. I mean, it's, it, I've been with ITR almost 10 years and the pace at which things have been changing and unfolding over the last couple of years has certainly been abnormal. So anyone sitting around looking around, you know, asking themselves saying, you know, this feels weird, you know, they're not wrong. Um, you know, how did we get here, I think is an important place to start. So when we think about COVID and the associated lockdowns and then the subsequent growth last year, you know, it really came down to, you know, pretty simple that there's a lot of liquidity out there. I mean, massive amounts of fiscal stimulus support, pent up demand flowing through, a lot of demand chasing not enough goods. I mean. A lot of our clients, you know, from a demand perspective, that's been the least of their worries. They've had too much demand, but they haven't had enough people, enough materials, enough capacity. Uh, And that's been a pretty common theme, not just from a U.S. market perspective, but really globally. Uh, And the net result is inflation and the higher price levels and rising on an accelerating basis uh, for the better, essentially over a year at this point, uh, is a byproduct of that demand. So, Demand largely got us into this situation, and ITR is of the opinion that a cooling demand trend uh, is going to ultimately get us out uh, in terms of some semblance of normalization from an inflation rate um, perspective. So, you know, I think about you know insurance and you know what's been I guess you know particularly on the you know whether it's from a home or auto perspective, those have probably been two of the most acute areas of inflation. It has really been new and used vehicle cost uh, and building materials and just you know, net home pricing 
um, which I think it makes it you know, particularly challenging in the insurance industry. It's been happening everywhere, but those are probably the two that you hear about the most. Yeah, for certain. If you've got to put cars back together again after they break and they cost a whole lot more or, or houses with material costs, it really is a concern for the industry, probably the most direct. And it also for the insurance industry, of course, the rate that companies charge is always kind of a lag anyway in terms of the reality of some of the costs. And that that gap has just sort of widened, I think, uh, in this environment. Certainly has not the, the insurance rates will never keep pace with this kind of inflationary growth. It just the system just won't really allow for it uh, right. to change that rapidly. So that creates a, a unique set of problems. So I know I saw an article you wrote recently that was talking about. So for consumers, you know, what does this mean? Um, and and it, the inflationary pe- period as it relates to their wage growth, for instance. And then, you know, kind of expand a little bit about on that, explain, you know, some of the factors you talked about there in that article. And then the whole notion of, you know, do you think we are going to see a deceleration anytime soon? Or is this, you know, here for the for the I know we I think we've moved past the transit transitory phase. Right. Right. But but where are we in this? Sure. So, you know, inflation is so interesting in that. I didn't really talk about it, you know, it, you know, from 2014 through 2019, I mean, inflation was kind of a non-issue really because it was so benign. I mean, it was just low, wage growth was generally good. Uh, and then of course now that's changed. And the when you think about inflation, you know, we always want to think about just like that monthly CPI number, you know, 8.5%, 8.3% for April um, 2022, which means in aggregate, the average consumers, you know, the prices, you know, that they pay for everything in their lives on average is up. 8.3 points. So, and that's hot. That is very aggressive inflation. Uh, but we always have to reconcile that back to wage growth. So in that article you're referencing, you know, most of us think about, you know, 2% is the target. That's what you kind of hear off and on in the media. That is what's quoted by the Fed as kind of a long-term stable inflation target, which is all well and good. But let's just say that, for example, we did have 2% inflation and folks would say, okay, you know, it's kind of like the Goldilocks, not, not too cold, not too hot. That's kind of like right where we want to be. But if wage growth is below that, that's a problematic number. If wage growth is 0% and inflation's 2%, that means that the consumer on average is actually moving backwards uh, in terms of what they can actually buy, you know, with their, you know, because 0% wage growth would mean just basically, you know, steady income, but all your costs going up 2%. Uh, so that could be problematic. So what we saw in 2020 is with the just net collapsing demand in the second quarter as we shut the economy down, and folks will remember, I mean, oil prices cratered, gas prices cratered, utility bills got cheaper, you know, raw materials, metals, everything got cheaper. You know, even lumber for a very brief period did, of course, you know, we heard about the inflation there after. Uh, so that was kind of a perfect cocktail because we saw it, you know, even through the second half of 2020, prices were down or or at, at worst, you know, very mildly rising. Uh, and incomes were generally up and, you know, via transfer payments, stimulus support, actually way up. Uh, and that put the consumer in a great spot. I mean, they, they just had gobs of money and prices hadn't really gone up. As we transitioned into 2021, particularly spring of last year, inflation started to pick up. It was, you know, the first real high number was actually uh, just over a year ago, uh, April 2021, where it inflation kind of jumped from, you know, in the 2% bandwidth north of 4% and kind of started that steady climb, which was hot, but still at the time, wage growth was exceeding that. So, you know, you hear 5% inflation, you say, oh my gosh, you know, that's really hot. But a year ago, 
wage growth was exceeding that, you know, six plus percent. So even with a generally faster uh, price rise trend, it wages were overtaking that. And then now we've kind of swung to the other side of the coin where it becomes problematic and why we're hearing about it so much is not just that it's noticeable, but it's also noticeable relative to wages where in the aggregate, you know, national wage growth is, you know, starting to underperform relative to prices, which means, you know, folks kind of on average, their purchasing power is moving backwards. Now, that's not ubiquitous. So I just did a presentation uh, earlier this week uh, in Seattle and, you know, in the Seattle market, local, you know, looking at some of the counties there, some of the local wage growth is double digits. So it's actually exceeding inflation. So now, to be fair, you know, Seattle cost of living is rising very quickly as well. So it's probably an, a necessary byproduct of that local market. Uh, so it's it's not everywhere that folks are moving backwards, but that's where things start to become problematic, which is exactly why, you know, even at this time last year, ITR was forecasting a decelerating outcome for 2022. You know, last year was the sugar high. Last year was kind of that perfect combination of circumstances. I mean, just think about where we were 12 months ago. I mean, we got the, we're on the heels of that third and final stimulus payment installment. Inflation was building, but still not quite, you know, red hot at that point. Stock market was up. Short-term interest rates were at zero. Mortgage rates were, you know, close to 3%, just above 3%. Confidence was up, you know, for the, for businesses, for consumers, consumers were spending. And then fast forward a year later, we don't really have any of that support. Inflation is very high, in some cases higher than wage growth. Uh, the stock market, as folks, you know, I would caution against checking you know, your portfolio and your stock caps right now. Um, mortgage rates are up. Short-term rates are rising. Uh, so, you know, all those tailwinds that we had that were essentially practically ripping the sail off the ship last year, they were so strong, they're starting to fade away. So we feel that, you know, with that, that deceleration, it's actually already happening at the consumer spending level. I, I kind of frame it. You know, if you think of the economy as a funnel and we think about the consumer and kind of direct point of sale activity at the bottom and then a layer above that distribution layer above that, you know, uh, you know, overall you know, manufacturers, it's starting at the bottom where the consumer is kind of first out of the gate. The government said, here's two trillion bucks. Get on out there. May 2020, you know, kind of coming out of lockdowns. So they kind of let us out of that initial dip. And now they're going to lead us it, or are actively leading us into this slowing consumer spending trend. So that's going to be a really big component to starting to take some juice out of these inflation trends that we expect starting some some cooling inflation over second half of this year is just going to be that aggregate demand pressure cooling off that's going to allow global manufacturers to start to catch up relative to demand. You know, we've heard so much about lead time extension, you know, you can't even buy, I think Ford just said, we're not even taking orders for new F-150s for 2022 because we're, we're just not going to have them. Um, that dynamic is going to start to change later this year and particularly next year as the consumer slows down. So so that's already starting to tip that business cycle. Uh, you know, we've seen the GDP numbers, uh, quarter on quarter growth rates, they're easing lower and lower and lower. So I think that the theme for the second half of 22 in next year is essentially normalization. We're seeing income growth normalizing to longer term trend. We're working through that stimulus spending. So we're kind of re, I don't know if we'll ever, you know, truly achieve normal, normal, pre-COVID normal. I mean, it's, well, the world, as we know, looks different, but it'll feel more normal as we approach into next year. And so, quite frankly, we're looking forward to that because obviously it's been um, you know, pretty abnormal and, and hectic here lately. Yeah, for certain. So, yeah, that, that's, then you throw in the, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, if you think about 
the the front end of all of this, the the the, the staggering change we saw in the economy due to due to the pandemic, very unusual circumstance, and then the very unusual reaction from you know on the fiscal side of basically saying here's a bunch of money, go spend it. Um, most economists would probably tell you that that's you know the most likely outcome of that is exactly inflation. It's like standing on a train and a track and being surprised there's a train coming, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. But what I wonder about is, okay, so just given the level of both shock at the front end and then the response are just what now seems to be like the traditional incremental playbook measures really going to be enough to change this or not or is there going to need to be another third shock of some stripe to kind of bring things back that gets us to that whole recession question um and so you know what are your thoughts about you know are some i think a lot of economists are, are saying no we likely aren't headed to one there's some sort of drumbeat out there that says we are um just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that yeah, so as things currently stand here in May 2022, ITR's thinking is that we still maintain that proverbial soft landing for the economy. Yeah. Now, I won't say it'll be without turbulence. Uh, you know, we think the landing gear is going to come out. We think we're going to get pretty darn close to that tarmac. You know, a hard landing would be recession, I guess. Right. Um, I should clarify that. So, so we think that we avoid it narrowly. Uh, you know, our GDP forecast uh, is you know, for, you know, the, the rate of growth we're forecasting for the U.S. economy this year relative to last year on an inflation adjusted basis. So just take out the nominal impact. If we just look at real performance, we're looking at less than one third the growth rate outcome. You know, 5.5% in 2021, we're looking for well below 2% for 2022. Uh, so, and, and we have, you know, GDP even moving sideways. And for those that are unaware, a technical recession is two consecutive quarters uh, of GDP decline. So we think it's gonna move sideways. So we've taken it about as close as we can, but there is a lot of resilient strength out there um, on the part of the consumer. You know, what, what's interesting is that none of really the consumer numbers that we're looking at are, are bad per se. It's just the, the comps that we have from last year are so outrageous from an income standpoint, you know, inclusive of all that stimulus spending. And, you know, and I just look at, if I look at, disposable income on say a, a 60 year time scale, we're just, we're right in line with long-term trend, you know, gradual rise over time, but we're, we're normalizing off of, uh, you know, quite an elevated period last year. But when we look at the job market right now, how tight employment is, how many job openings there are, you know, even with rates rising, we still see that, you know, debt service on the part of the consumers in pretty good shape, yeah. uh, you know, far better, you know, because folks, I think inappropriately, they keep wanting to comp this and say, oh, this is going to be 0809 all over again. And, you know, when you look at delinquency rates, even on auto loans, but particularly on home loans, uh, you know, 90 days delinquent on mortgage, um, uh, you know, mortgage loans, it's exceptionally low, historically low, the lowest that we've ever seen it before. So the consumer's in pretty good shape. We think they have a little bit of, of insulation that they'll probably need for this cycle, but we're struggling to make an empirical case right now for, you know, outright recessionary outcome for, for either late this year or next year, you know, most like the strongest case you can make is more kind of qualitative and emotion based at this point, you know, you look at the market, which is a leading indicator. Uh, it's imperfect. Uh, I'll say that to be sure. But, you know, that's pricing in the future problems that ITR has been expecting later this year, next year from a demand perspective yeah. uh, for quite some time. So, you know, we're keeping an eye on things. Um, 
but for now we're sticking to that you know it's it's ironic because in early 2022 early this year you know itr we were kind of the bears in the room like a lot of the big banks they were forecasting like four plus percent inflation adjusted gdp growth uh and there was no way i mean you know whether it's ukraine or, or other there was no scenario where we were just going to blissfully continue accelerating this year there was normalization that was that was and is and will happen fast forward now to may itr we're just sticking to what we were saying which is going to be a pretty significant deceleration and now a lot of those folks uh that were you know in la la land three four months ago now we're falling all over each other to see who can call the biggest recession for this cycle. Yeah, so it's right. now all of a sudden ITR, we're, we're the bulls in the room, even though we haven't even changed our expectations really. So, right. um, so that's kind of been an interesting sentiment shift for us to keep an eye on. But but for now, you know, ITR, those of uh, your listeners that have seen us before, know that we live in in the data world. There's no crystal ball. You know, we're not just conjuring forecasts out of thin air. We listen to the empirical data points. Um, and to be fair, I mean, they're they're not tremendous. I mean, they're certainly signaling a deceleration and have been, you know, right. really starting middle of last year. But nothing's in free fall. You know, nothing looks like it did, say, in 07, heading into the Great Recession when it was predicting that or or like they did in, say, March, April, May 2020 right. know, when they were in free fall, you know, as we you know, shut the economy down. Uh, so they don't look great, but they're not horrific at this point. So, you know, and they may well get to that point, but. Uh, at least for now, uh, we're we're keeping the bottom on that forecast. I, I hope you're right about that one, uh, and that we don't have to have some other significant event occur to kind of begin to normalize things again. Just given how we got here and the significance of the events that it took to get us here, uh, and who knows what the new normal is going to look like in all of this? Probably was unrealistic for everybody to sort of expect that we were going to live forever with a you know, 1% inflation and 0% interest rates for the rest of our lives, right? That right. probably not um, a rational historical view of the world. But um, everybody got used to it <laughs> pretty right. quickly. Well, it, every time folks start convincing themselves that this is the new normal is like exactly when things change. And, and that's basically yeah. what happened. They're like, oh, zero percent interest rates, you know, way more demand than we could possibly. You know, look, I've had to talk, have that conversation with a lot of my clients where, you know, their backlogs are huge. There's a ton of demand. I was like, yeah, you're supposed to feel that way right now. Uh, but let's think about where we're going to be two, three, four quarters from now and things are going to look a lot, a lot different. Yeah, it's, it's going to be certainly interesting. To, I, I just have a lot of just curiosity about, you know, OK, are the, are the new the prices, for instance, you know, the price of housing typically, you know, I don't think that the big jump that you know, a builder was going to build a house for a million dollars today, let's just say, and I have a hard time believing that in 18 months from now, they're all of a sudden going to build that same house for $700,000. Uh, you know, I just, even though the prices may normalize some degree for the materials, I think, you know, consumers have sort of, that that's what the cost to build a house. And I don't think that's right. going to change. Um, no, that that's a good point. And so so we're forecasting normalizing inflation. So so we see inflation slowing in the second half of this year, uh, but and then getting more normal next year, you know, closer to two, three percent. But, you know, when I say normalizing inflation, folks sometimes kind of take that and run with it and think that that means normal prices like yeah. where, where houses are going to cost what they did in 2019. Cars are going to cost what they did in 2019 appliances. That's not going to happen. Right. What we're saying, and, and I don't want to overpromise and let folks believe that, of, you know, that would be nice, certainly, but but we just don't think that's probable. You know, this we think the pace at which homes get more expensive 
starts to normalize uh, right. in the second half right. of this year. The pace at which car prices go up is going to normalize as the chip issue abates. They can produce more, bring more inventory um, to market, which will be happening second half of this year and particularly next year. So it's more just the pace at which the costs in, in your policyholders' lives and, and and just your personal life, they're going to start to go up at a more manageable rate that that your your wage increases are going to start to keep pace with next year. But but prices going back to where they were two, three years ago, that's deflation. And we're right. not guessing that. We're right. forecasting disinflation, which is just a normalizing inflation rate. So there's a little bit of nuance there that, you know, because when I say normalizing inflation, folks, you know, they, they kind of... I think th- they think that is what they wish that it was, as opposed to what it a- it's actually going to be, which is just going to be slowing price growth. Right, exactly. And I, I think that I'm not sure that uh, the reality of that has really sunk into the consumer psychology yet. Um, but that will be interesting to see for certain. So back to insurers as we kind of wrap things up here. Any any thoughts about what insurers ought to be doing specifically in this as a result of, of the current environment? Yeah, I mean, obviously, whether you're a manufacturer or an insurer, you, you have to increase your, your prices. You know, the premiums paid by policyholders are going to have to go up because um, the, just the, the cost of that asset insured, whether it's a car or a home, I mean, the replacement cost has gone up, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 yeah. percent, you know, depending on what it is in the market. So I think the challenge with insurance is that it's kind of in the middle. And I think that there's a just kind of like an intuitive gap on the part of policyholders are saying, well, why are my premiums going up so much? My house hasn't changed. You know, I'm living in the same house and, you know, maybe I have the same car that I had two years ago, but it's, you know, kind of probably a communication, you know, effort, you know, on the part of insurers that, okay, but the replacement cost of that car, home, physical asset, whatever it is, has gone up astronomically. I mean, lumber, materials, labor, you know, just parts and labor on the auto side. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. Not to mention the lead times if you can even get it, but once you do, the cost of replacement uh, is, is up huge. And, and I think you made a comment that, uh, you know, premiums probably lag that. So it's, it's probably going to have to continue to rise this year and then maybe even catching up next year as aggregate inflation comes down. Uh, but I, I just I think, you know, myself as a policyholder, I mean, I, if I didn't live in the world I lived in, I could see, you know, that kind of thought gap occurring and, and being a challenge in particular in this in this cycle. So so I think communication along with, you know, because again, folks got to stay profitable and, and be able to exist. So going to have to take price and probably just more care in the communication of that um, yeah. than maybe in just kind of normal years when it's just kind of modestly edging higher. It's going to have to be higher than that this year. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think you're right. And, and unfortunately, the the way insurers have to go about getting their rates approved doesn't allow for particularly quick uh, responses to these things. And typically it becomes in increments. And so um, you know, we're sort of anticipating there to be a little pain period here where the uh, cost and, and rate does not match um, for some little period of time here, which is a recipe that's not particularly favorable for insurers uh, to have to live through. So, right. well, listen, Connor, we thank you to, for your thoughts today and um, appreciate your time uh, in, in this. It's an interesting, interesting time to live through um, and everybody needs the benefit of some expert opinion now and again so we we thank you for joining us today absolutely uh, I was happy to come on and, and maybe you'll you your listeners will be seeing me in the future maybe for an update so we'll do thank you appreciate it thank you and that's it for this week's episode of insurance uncovered a special thank you to our sponsor New England asset management. 
We hope you'll join us again in two weeks on June 1st when we're back with more insurance news, including an interview about ESG and investing for mutual insurers. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a terrific day.